Pretty Mental is about accepting our full selves and inspiring others to do the same by being daringly unfiltered. This means completely normalizing all things mental health and the wild journey that has brought us here. We are challenging the stigmatization of normal human suffering, and we are done pretending and subscribing to the notion that it is taboo to have challenging mental health experiences. Welcome to the Pretty Mental Health Club, and enjoy the show. Hey, Valentina. Hey, Paula. And hello, everybody. And welcome to another episode of Pretty Mental. So this week, we sat down with an incredible woman, Dr. Keisha Thomas. She is Senior Associate Dean of the College of Arts and Sciences at the University of Georgia, as well as Professor of Industrial Organizational Psychology and African American Studies. And she is also the Founding Director of the Center for Research and Engagement in Diversity at UGA. So while I was there getting my undergrad, she was actually my mentor and she has had a very big influence on me. In this episode, we want to invite you guys to lean into an important and courageous conversation with us as we explore the differences between performing diversity and practicing inclusion, colorblindness versus multiculturalism, and how these issues are currently impacting all of our mental health. Oftentimes, these conversations are avoided because of our fear of sounding ignorant, but the only thing that this avoidance is doing is creating more division between all of us. So get those Q-tips, clean out your ears, and press play. Dr. Keisha Thomas, thank (laughs) thank you so much for sitting down with us today. We're super excited to be here. Yeah, we're so excited to have you. And we wanted to start out by jumping into directly talking about diversity in organizations Mm -hmm. and in our country in general to help people understand the difference between diversity and inclusion, because these are words that are often mentioned together in this conversation. Um, So why do you think it's important to include both words when we talk about this? Right. And I think, you know, for too long, um, we talked only about diversity and diversity really is a numbers game. Um, So diversity is about representation. It's about um, the number of members of different groups that you have present in an organization or in a community. And um, it's nice to have that information, but sitting next to someone who's different from you in the classroom does nothing to kind of challenge the status quo, open up opportunities for influence or authority, So we really need to go beyond that and talk about inclusion as well. So if diversity is, you know, how many of each group you have, inclusion is, well, how do members of different groups feel in that environment or in that organization? So one of my um, colleagues, Bernardo Ferdman, talks about, um, you know, diversity as counting heads and then inclusion as making sure those heads count. So when we talk about inclusion, we're really talking about um, people's assessment of do they have the opportunity for voice in that organization, for influence, do they feel both seen and heard um, versus, you know, just mattering because of, of their difference. And organizations that are inclusive are ones that value people across their differences and see all of those different differences as kind of opportunities for learning, opportunities for growth. And have you worked with organizations that that practice this inclusion? Have you seen it play out? I'm curious about both sides of it, maybe having a cro- come across organizations that just perform diversity. Mm-hmm versus organizations that you've actually seen practice the inclusion? Well, I don't think any organization is perfect on inclusion, but I think, you know, I certainly have seen some organizations be more successful in pursuing inclusion. So um, an example of that, if I go into an organization and, you know, they ask me to give a, a workshop on recruitment and they'll say, well, we really need to hire a diverse candidate. And it's like, ooh, you know, that's a a red flag because diversity is a characteristic of a group, 
not a characteristic of an individual. Mm -hmm. And so already there's a signal there that they are somewhat uncomfortable with talking about, you know, someone as being a member of a racial minority group or an underrepresented group or a marginalized group. But, you know, they've uh, adopted a language of talking about diversity as an individual characteristic rather than, you know, really it being a group characteristic. And so you might imagine in that type of organization being different could feel really stigmatizing, you know, because now you're, you're labeled as diverse. And what does that really mean? All it really, you know, signals to me is that there is a difference. But sometimes with differences, we label them as um, deficiencies or dysfunctional in a way. And so I think um, the more inclusive organizations that I've worked with are ones in which people feel comfortable, you know, talking about race or mm-hmm. gender or sexuality or age. Um, there's not, you know, this coded language to try to avoid, avoid kind of being transparent in that way. And they have a healthy respect and questioning about ways in which they could be better and learning about cultural racial differences in order to kind of serve the broader community better or package um, their product better or their service better. So I guess that takes us into the conversation of assimilation versus Mm. integration. Mm -hmm. So I think there is... um, has been a lot of pressure for people of color and ethnic minorities, immigrants in particular, to assimilate. And I think as a country, perhaps we've elevated assimilation as the the healthier way for us to all be together, but oftentimes that has meant a downgrading of our own kind of ancestral culture, our heritage, our traditions, our customs. Um, in a way that has um, positioned them as less than rather than equal to. Because assimilation means that, you know, you are giving up a part of yourself to embrace something that um, others are kind of positioning as inherently better. And so assimilation might be effective in the short run. You know, people, you know, um, of the majority group accept you, perhaps you change your name um, to be more commonplace, Um, you adopt a food that's really not your group's food, but one of the majority group so that you can fit in. But um, it also serves as kind of an identity threat for the individual themselves to kind of have to give up a part of themselves. I mean, what does that say when you're willing to kind of erase part of your identity in order to be accepted by another group. And so I think many psychologists would argue that integration or even multiculturalism is more effective because we all get to kind of value our own histories and traditions, customs, you know, even histories that are difficult in order to feel fully seen rather than erased. And so sometimes I think for African Americans in particular, when, you know, we hear the message, well, you've never been a slave, you know, why is this still relevant? Why are we still having that conversation? No one wants to have that part of their history erased. Um, It's a shared history and, and something that, you know, we all have to acknowledge in order to move forward and understand the kind of broader implications of it in regards to who we are today. So I think integration is um, an ideal that we're still working towards. What do you think that we can do as a society to aid in this effort? Well, I think a lot of it has to do with um, our comfort in you know, having courageous conversations. And so I think even at the youngest levels, you know, preschool, even. Um, I think exposing young kids to a diversity of characters and stories and heroes in regards to, um, you know, the, um, you know, heroes and heroines that they are exposed to, the scientists, the explorers, 
and not always having one group as kind of the superhero of the world, I think helps to challenge our notions that, you know, only one group matters. You know, we see more evidence of ways in which women have contributed to society um, in regards to, you know, where we are today, as well as people of color, um, LGBT, you know, individuals, that we have a broader conceptualization of how we got to the place we are today, then perhaps we can accept um, individuals regardless of their kind of group memberships or their ethnicities or sexualities. So I, I think, um, you know, parents being intentional about, you know, the books um, that their children are exposed to, the curriculum that they're exposed to very early on, and, and K through 12 teachers as well, kind of being prepared to deliver content that has been, um, I think, decolonized in mm-hmm. some ways so that they are better prepared um, to kind of support um, the identity development of students is really critical. Yeah, it was very surprising for me when I, it took me until I think my second year at UGA Mm -hmm. to really come across these topics. So I was shocked when I started coming into these conversations that I had gone through an entire education, middle school, high school, and even through freshman year at UGA, really. I mean, just covering the basics, but it took me, I had to make a conscious decision to seek out this information to even have access to it. Right. And I think, you know, a lot of students could avoid kind of getting into those topics about race and privilege and power and oppression. But, you know, many institutions today are kind of integrating that into the curriculum. So if you, you know, come to UGA that the university has a cultural diversity requirement, but then, you know, arts and sciences has its own multicultural requirement. And they're slightly different, whereas, you know, a cultural requirement is learning about cultures globally. Um, But the multicultural requirement is you need to learn about the cultures of the people domestically who are making up this country. And, um, you know, we tend to think of things like black history or Latino history or women's history as only salient to those groups. But in sharing that history, we come to understand all of our participation in it. So black history is American history, right? Women's history is American history. It's just that we haven't been as, I think, aggressive in in regards to telling those stories at younger um, age, for younger age groups. Right, and it's not only that it's it's a history, it's that it's continuing, right? It's like the oppression that we aren't addressing and the discrimination practices that have taken place probably, I mean, since this country began, Mm -hmm. uh, they are continuing. Mm -hmm. So if we don't acknowledge it, it's going to continue to perpetuate the trauma, right? I think a lot of it has to do with our education, though, because I know you were privileged enough to have the Dr. Thomas, Keisha. She gave me permission to call her Keisha. (laughs) Of course. But... I was not exposed to that. A lot of my friends were not exposed to that. And I've only been exposed to that through you. You've been teaching me this. You've been teaching me how to be more of an ally and how to educate myself. But what about the people who they don't have that? What are we to do then? You know, because how do they how do they learn without knowing what where to even go, what to learn? Right. So, you know, some of this now, you know, we're in the middle of a political campaign. And so it's been somewhat um, heartening to hear political candidates be questioned about, you know, how do you feel about immigration? And how are you going to pass, you know, um, more humane immigration policy? And how about racial violence and police interaction with, you know, black and Latino communities? Um, So I'm happy that, you know, those conversations are being elevated on a national level. But it can't simply be when 
you know, people of color are in the room that we have those conversations. And so I think more and more I'm hearing um, a call for, you know, white folks to have these conversations among themselves. Mm-hmm. And that, you know, people who, you know, had the opportunity to do a deep dive into issues of, let's say, race and privilege and oppression have to be brave enough to have those conversations at the Thanksgiving or the Christmas table um, and talk about, you know, how does this show up in my kind of daily life? So, and I think about, you know, the relationships across race and how they might play out, um, you know, for my own kids who are African-American when they are off at school and, you know, what's it like to um, work on a team with um, other students who are white who have had those conversations and done that work versus those, you know, who perhaps have never even had a conversation with, you know, a person of color before. And, you know, what are the impediments on, you know, students of color then to be able to both educate their peers, but also engage in their own performance. You know, that's, I think, a lot of heavy lifting that we put on the shoulders of underrepresented students to kind of always be in in that position. So I think, you know, parents and, and teachers and peers need to kind of keep those conversations on the table. Um, understanding though that that requires a certain level of bravery to do so because sometimes there's negative uh, reaction like oh, Paula why are you talking about that again can't we have you know a decent family meal or can't you know we just go out and have fun why do you have to bring up you know whatever issue is in the news um, today so you know Paula, when you were in my class, we talked about racial identity development and how, you know, regardless of your um, racial identity group, often there is an encounter that pushes you to think a little bit more deeply about, you know, how does my identity, identity interact with the identity of other people and our expectations of each other and how we respond to each other. And that in order to develop that growth, you really need to be in a support system that encourages it. So that validates those conversations, that's seeking out information, that's kind of sharing that information in a safe environment. But then when you put yourself in context where um, you're not with folks who are on a similar journey, it can be really difficult. And in fact, you can actually regress in your identity development if you're constantly faced with backlash for wanting to kind of get into those conversations and be more socially aware or socially active. Um, so that's, you know, why it's really, you know, so, so important to think about, you know, who your peer group is, um, to set realistic expectations about the level of change that you can make within kind of your local community or within your family or friend group. And then hopefully kind of find a way to make incremental change that will spill out and get kind of larger and larger. I think certainly this podcast, right, is a way to to do that and to kind of normalize those conversations and model them as well. Yeah, and that was certainly the intention in doing this was to begin the process at least through Pretty Mental of disseminating this information. Mm-hmm. Because what I've come across, and it's exactly what you were talking about, is people in the majority group often being afraid of having these conversations because they are afraid that they are going to accidentally insult. Right. Right. Because they don't know what Mm -hmm. is insulting and what is not. Right. Mm -hmm. Even as simple as, as simple or as complex as saying black versus African American. Mm -hmm. Right. Or... Yeah, just not having the education or the information accessible. So it's 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 a fear. It's I'm just going to opt out of having this conversation because what do I know? Right. What do I have to add to it? Well, and the good thing now is that rarely do I am I having conversations where peer with peers where people aren't whispering <laughs> black or latino and you're like, "Why are you whispering?" 
Like when yeah. did that become a bad word? Um, yes. So it makes you think about like, you know, really God, what's going on in their head where they feel so uncomfortable that they need to whisper it. Um, but I think there are still occasions where folks might avoid labeling someone by their racial identity, even when it's an obvious um, example. So you might recall when I was in class, when you were in my class, that um, I had this incident where I was, you know, taking one of my kids to a birthday party and I left, um, I think my door was ajar to my car and so the alarm was going off and my car was the only one of its kind and, and so the other, you know, parents knew it was my car. So when the, the person from the I don't know what chain it was, came in to say, oh, there's this white Volvo and the um, alarm is going off. Um, The parents were like, oh, it's um, that lady in the corner with the blue sweater. And and I realized what they were doing. They were avoiding saying, oh, it's the black lady because I was the only black lady there. Um, So I thought, okay, I'm just going to let them sit there with that and see how far they go on with, you know, pointing out everything except, you know, the obvious. And it went on for a while. And then finally, I was like, okay, it's my car. I'll I'll go put them out of their pain. But, um, you know, hopefully it's generational. I'm not so sure. You know, we always say, oh, well, you know, this generation is different. You know, they grew up in more diverse high schools. They know the language of inclusion. But something happens, you know, once we get, I think, sometimes even in college or adulthood, where we start to become socialized um, to be a certain type of way um, where, you know, in seeking acceptance by our peers or our co-workers. I think there's oftentimes, you know, pressure to kind of revert to not being mindful or not being inclusive, not being multicultural. Um, So we have to find ways to kind of create institutional support systems so that people can still kind of continue on in that and in that journey and not go back to kind of whispering, you know, black or Latino or avoiding the label altogether. Um, I'll tell you once in a while, I still get um, a paper where a student will say colored people when they mean people of color. And it's like they, you know, they're not meaning to be offensive, um, but they're, they're just not well educated about the kind of um, legacy of that term and how, you know, terminology has grown and developed um, over different decades. And I have to go back and correct it and kind of have the explanation of, you know, colored, it's it's not something that we use anymore. That's your great grandparents language and not, you Mm -hmm. know, 2019. Right, because that was a language that was used during times of very overt oppression. Yes. Well, and it's, you know, we always talk about people first language within this space. So we don't say disabled people. We say people with disabilities. Um, In the same way, we don't say colored people. We say people of color. Mm -hmm. That's an important, it's, it's things like that, that we want to disseminate to our listeners, right? So that they can start feeling more comfortable with having mm-hmm. these conversations, right? Um, even when you were talking about people whispering black or whispering Latino, those are, they don't realize it, but their own fear, right? Is showing up as a microaggression mm-hmm. um, or micro invalidation. And I was wondering if you could help our listeners understand what we mean by microaggression or micro invalidation. Right. So I'm, you know, most familiar with the work by Daryl Wing Sue, who talks about microaggressions as these chronic um, slights, insults, slur that on the face of it might seem pretty benign, but given um, their frequency, it's like... um, experiencing kind of these micro cuts over and over again that, you know, ultimately are damaging and reinforce a message of, you know, invalidation, assault, 
um, and outsiderness. So a, a great example, um, I was a participant in the HERS Institute several years ago, maybe even 10 years ago, with um, several other faculty from UGA. HERS is this um, professional development for faculty women and women in higher ed who um, are identified as future leaders. So it's a year-long um, training. You know, my participant, my particular group traveled to Wellesley College, and we were with, you know, 40 other really kind of brilliant women from around the country learning about women's leadership in higher ed. And at one of the breaks, um, there was um, a colleague from Harvard who came up to me and she said, Juanita, Juanita, I just wanted to and I looked at her and she said, you're not Juanita, are you? I was like, no, I'm not. I'm one of the other black women from UGA. And I'm Keisha. She goes, oh, oh, I'm so sorry. You're right. Keisha, I just wanted to tell you how much I enjoy um, when you contribute to our discussions. You're so articulate. I was wondering if you, you know, had some special training or <laughs> some you know, particular form of development. And I looked at her and laughed and I said, yes, I went to the Condi Rice School of Public Speaking. You know, at that time, um, Condoleezza Rice was Secretary of State and she was a very visible black woman that everyone would say, oh, she's so smart. She's so articulate. And I was like, okay, yeah, she's a PhD and she was provost at Stanford. Of course she's smart, articulate. And so I think you know, when black people in particular um, encounter that, um, you know, compliment of being articulate, it signals that perhaps this person had low expectations of me. And so I think that's one example of a microaggression, you know, praising someone for um, an attribute or a characteristic that they should have, that, you know, they would be expected to have in any other circumstance if only they were white. But um, engaging in that practice or behavior when you're black somehow stands out as something that is unexpected and unusual, and so it needs to be complimented. And so I think for a lot of black professionals, that's a reminder that um, we're not fully integrated that we're still kind of somewhat on the margins. Um, another example, and I've encountered this a lot across my career, sometimes it's from colleagues, but sometimes it's even from students, I will give a suggestion. So imagine being in a dissertation proposal and you, you know, the faculty is, is there to support the student in developing the best project possible and and I give a suggestion in regards to their methodology, and the student will say, oh, actually, that's a good idea. And I would say, actually? Like, why actually? You know, why am I not expected to be a contributor? Um, so again, you know, these are two examples of things that really, you know, they look good on the surface, they seem positive, but they really, I think for the recipient, are reminders of um, being somewhat invalidated and outside of the mainstream. Yeah, I think it's very difficult for people to not engage in microaggressions if they don't understand the history mm -hmm. behind what they're saying, right? Because even referring to the language or speaking English in a certain way, right? It's, oh, congratulations, you're so eloquent because you're, we're, we're all we're sitting here at the table right now speaking English in a way that's very, what you call it, Eurocentric in a way, right? Um, versus Ebonics, mm -hmm. right? For the African American Black community, that's a full language. Mm -hmm. It doesn't mean that it's broken English, right. right? It doesn't mean that we are eloquent. It means that we are just happening to speak this version of English, mm -hmm. right? So. I think congratulating someone for speaking 
one particular version of English is saying, oh, that's a, that's a better version, right? Yeah. But you don't know that unless you understand that linguistically Ebonics is a fully evolved language. Mm-hmm. Right, with its own kind of rules and norms and, and structure. I mean, that's certainly kind of outside of my own discipline but I think there are lots of ways in which other groups you know participate in their own language and terminology and slang um, that perhaps isn't as demonized um, as kind of the language that has been kind of developed within the African-American community I think what's really interesting is the extent to which um, blacks code switch so even at you know an age of five or six, um, a black kid in a white school with a white teacher is um, conscious enough in their blackness to kind of switch language with their black peer group versus a white teacher and a white peer group um, in regards to um, you know the terms that they use again that the structure of the language that they use. Yeah. So I think it's important, like you said, that Ebonics as a dialect has been pretty demonized in this culture. Um, So I think it's important for us to start to deconstruct that and challenge the notion that is broken English. And it reminds me, we just recently went to Jamaica, right? Mm -hmm. And we ran across Petois there. Mm -hmm. And again, the same thing. It's a fully evolved language with its norms, right? But if they're speaking to somebody that doesn't know that, that person will start trying to correct them or say, you're not speaking correctly. Right. Right. When in reality, no, we're maybe not speaking correctly. We don't know what that language is. Well, especially if you're in someone else's context, someone else's culture. I mean, the, I mean, that's privilege right there, you know, to go into someone else's culture environment in their history and then ask that they conform to what you identify right as more worthy or meritorious i you know i think an example of that in our own country that um, is somewhat related is that you know a lot of people are really bothered when they interact with um, some kind of computerized system like an atm And the first question is um, English or Spanish. And I think a lot of native English speakers don't want to be bothered with taking that millisecond (laughs) to indicate, you know, which language because they believe that, well, you know, if you're in the U.S., everything should be in English um, without the ability to recognize, well, wait a minute, this is not your country. This is um, a country that was colonized and um, the native language of the indigenous people are not even listed on that ATM menu. Um, But the, just this um, issue of, you know, kind of being bothered by trying to be inclusive um, is really something that kind of speaks to where we are. Um, as a country. Well, in the same line of, of talking about microaggressions, this brings up an instance the other day that Paul and I experienced where we were leaving a yoga class and the yoga teacher who was white came up to a black girl and said, we're having a photo shoot this weekend for marketing purposes and we would love to have a black girl involved because we we don't have that yet. And it would show that we are open and we're diverse and we're inviting. And the black girl is very taken aback or no, no, I'm sorry. She wasn't, she was very almost extra patient. She was just, she said, okay, yeah, um, sure. And then me and Paul were just sitting there. Like we have to, we have to do something like this is so uncomfortable, but at the same time we didn't want we we struggled with how to be an ally at that moment, but we had to deal with the consequences in our own minds the days after. Like we didn't say anything. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, yeah I, I how you said we struggled to be allies in that moment. 
And yeah, because there's this element of not wanting to embarrass the person that isn't educated, right? That right. plays in at those moments, right? Yeah, so, I mean, I guess, yeah, what would be the appropriate response? I mean, I, I certainly could imagine, you know, perhaps you could have gone up to the, you know, black classmate to kind of check in to say, so how did you feel about that? Um, I heard you, you know, say that you're going to do it just to understand where her head was at. I think my first response would have been no, or sure, are you going to pay me, (laughs) right, (laughs) for this additional labor to show up, you know, um, perhaps at a time in which I wasn't planning on being there. But then she also could have been of the mindset that, oh, you know, maybe if I'm in some of the promotional material, maybe more black women will come to the studio and participate. And then I won't be the only one. That's what she said. When she she said, mm -hmm. she said, yeah, it's interesting to me that I am like usually the only black girl doing yoga in a class. So maybe if I um, show more diversity, what I wanted to say so badly, and I, I can be kind of intense, so I didn't want to do it in the heat of the moment, but I wanted there was, to... There was a lot of people there, so yeah. it, was, it was very public. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I, I wanted to to pull the teacher aside and be like, hey, do you do you realize what you just did? You know, you're... you're I, what, I understand maybe your intention is to have a more inclusive environment in a society... Well, no, her intention was to show to show a to, more diverse to show to perform right. But it's you're not. I mean, are you like what are you really trying to do? Because if you wanted to have an inclusive environment, you'd go into different communities. You would set up shop in different places. You would. I don't know. Just not that. No, you I wouldn't think, be a, Valentina. That's a great example. So it sounds like um, she wanted to show a diverse studio, right, through the strategic inclusion of this black woman. And perhaps her desire was to grow the diversity of the studio. But then growing the inclusion of the studio might have been a different issue. So how might she have done that? Um, Does that mean she, you know, diversifies the type of music that's played during the yoga sessions? Does it mean that she strategically um, recruits a diversity of teachers? Um, Does she, you know, host, um, I don't know, conversation sessions around social, social justice issues? I mean, that's a great example of a division between diversity and inclusion, Mm -hmm. right? It was yeah. it's definitely, you know, could be critiqued as well. She's really only performing diversity if she's not taking these additional steps to create an environment where diverse people want to participate. It's funny, actually, now I remember as we're talking about it in that same studio, I was <laughs> I was doing a yoga class. I was in the class. And they put on some salsa music, right, for one of the songs. Like, and it was Colombian. We're Colombian. Mm-hmm. Um, and the teacher was like, said, I had to get some Mexican music for you guys. During... And I'm like, girl, uh. that was salsa from Colombia. <laughs> right. But then again, it's making these mistakes that scare people in the majority population from even engaging in the conversation. Right. So I think my kind of question that I battle with is how do we get people that are in the majority to take the step to be interested in getting educated on this because it's just so much human nature for us to only concern ourselves with the things that directly affect us mm-hmm. so how do we convince people that think maybe they're not being directly affected by it to make the conscious decision to lean in yeah so, um, you know, one of the um, studies I did with colleagues Vicki Plout and Matt Gorin, it's published a while ago, 09, um, we found that when black hospital workers or minority um, hospital workers worked in departments or units 
with whites who were colorblind, they were less engaged in their workplace than when um, these minority workers were instead working around whites who were more multicultural in their perspective. So since colorblindness is a um, diversity ideology that so many of us have been socialized to embrace, you would think in most work environments that are multiracial, people of color are getting lots of colorblind messages about how differences are addressed and managed. And subsequently, that leads to you know, minorities who are not as engaged as they could be. And a lack of engagement means that someone else is going to be engaging in additional labor. Um, when we're not engaged, that means we're less likely to kind of give back to our organization, to take on additional tasks, to, you know, kind of um, pitch in and deal, pull up the slack. And so ultimately, it is not in the best interest of majority group members to avoid multiculturalism. You know, ultimately, it hurts them in regards to their own kind of workload and their effectiveness and the long-term effectiveness of their organizations. So if companies want to be more effective and create more healthier work environments, they need to find ways that everyone feels valued and they need to signal that in how they recruit people, how they select them, how they um, create opportunities for professional development and growth and how they evaluate them. You know, the things that we value the most are what gets um, measured, be it at a university or in a workplace. And so we have to create these human resource systems that reflect those values. Um, You know, and again, ultimately, you know, that, that is a, I think one of the ways that we kind of create opportunities for learning for the majority group. Mm-hmm. And yeah, that, I mean, that gives us some leverage, right. in the conversation, just bringing in how practicing colorblindness and not leaning into the education of what's really going on, um, hurts everybody. Right. Mm-hmm. And from the, mul- from the mental health perspective, we are, all you know, the color blindness and the oppression and the microaggressions and all of that is rooted in a history of trauma mm. in this country. And by not leaning into it and addressing it, the trauma is being perpetuated, right? Because any trauma that goes unprocessed gets passed out down from generation to generation. And trauma is contagious, right? When you're dealing with a traumatized person, it can often be the case that they're they're going to act out, right, from a place of fear, right? And that fear gets passed on, right? If, you, if you're in a state of trauma and you're, like, in a constant state of survival, that's going to come out in the way that you interact with other people and other people are going to react in a way back to you that's also traumatic, right? So before we know it, none of us are really feeling safe mm. in this country, Right. So we're just passing around the fear. And from a mental health perspective, I think that's where this conversation becomes really important because until we address it, we can't really start to heal the trauma that the foundation of this country was kind of built Mm. on. Mm -hmm. Well, you know, I hear trauma. I start to kind of turn off as an industrial psychologist because that's not necessarily something that, you know, we talk about or or research, but I, I certainly can think of work environments where there are cross-racial interactions and typically the minority group member becomes the teacher and the majority group member becomes the student. And in those cross-racial interactions where that is often the pattern, be it neighbors, classmates, coworkers, it's the rare instance where the student gets to control the curriculum. So what I mean by that is that in those situations that are cross-racial, oftentimes majority group members, at some point get to employ a, a strategy where they put up a 
um, invisible stop sign where it's like, okay, I think I've learned enough (laughs) or okay, I don't think your point is um, valid any longer or okay, you're blowing this out of proportion. Um, What you're sharing isn't real, it's made up. Um, And that creates, I think, challenges for both parties because now the minority group member again, has um, challenges to their feelings of safety and contribution in that environment because they're not feeling fully seen and heard. And now the majority group member is kind of questioning of, um, you know, is this minority coworker really someone that I can count on? Can I rely upon them? Or are they going to throw out the um, invisible race card? right? Because they can't really connect with what has been shared with them. And they've kind of cut off the opportunity to learn more by shutting down the conversation. Mm -hmm. And so then at that point, the majority, the person in the majority doesn't really feel safe to engage, right? And the person in the minority doesn't feel safe to engage either. And that's, that's when we start to, you know, bridge the gap in terms of when we talk, when I talk about trauma, right, we're talking about people's nervous systems Mm. being elevated, Mm -hmm. right, and their body being on hyper alert for threat, right? So now everybody has higher levels of cortisol running through their body, which is the stress hormone. And now people are starting to have problems sleeping, right? Mm -hmm. If they don't feel safe within the communities and organizations where they are living, our body will start to act in such a way that we need to be on a constant lookout for threat, right? And if the person we're engaging with feels that way, we're going to end up feeling that way, mm. right? Like when somebody comes at you hostile, mm-hmm. we, we're, we're social beings. We're, you know, mm-hmm. the human animal just functions in that way. Um, so that's why I think it's so important to have these conversations so that we can start to bring some understanding right, to those but- interactions. So within the context of work, though, um, regardless about how you feel around those coworkers or feelings of safety, work, you know, has this additional value of money, (laughs) right? And so people have to show up regardless of whether or not they feel included. And I think you know, one of the strategies that I talk with students about that seems to occur over the lifespan is what I call the cafeteria table, right? So Beverly Tatum has that book, Why Are All the Black Kids Sitting Together at the Cafeteria Table? And there are principals and middle school teachers who, you know, hate that they see this, you know, kind of informal segregation occur in their schools when, you know, kids start to segregate into kind of like groups. But one of the reasons why that occurs is that it creates an opportunity um, for validation and support and peer mentoring and role modeling and learning about, you know, how do I navigate this environment and what are the ways in which I can, I think, remain productive and engage in you know, a, a certain level of self-care until I'm able to find a better environment. Um, so I, you know, I want to be kind of mindful that um, not everyone has the opportunity to kind of close the door and move on to something new, um, but that, you know, sometimes people just find a way to kind of make do with the environments that they're in. And finding a peer group of similar others is often a strategy to do that. Mm -hmm. To survive the environment. Yep. I definitely come from the perspective that until we are all okay, no one is going to be okay. Mm. Because we are so interrelated in the system. And at the end of the day, multiculturalism is the reality of the United States and even the world at large, right? With globalization taking place. So, and because we are such tribal beings, Mm -hmm. humans, we need to be able to get along with our neighbors in order to feel safe, right? And so just kind of bringing all this back to the mental health conversation, 
you know, where people might without knowing think like, okay, like what, what does talking about diversity in organizations have to do with mental health? Right. Cause that's certainly a question that mm-hmm. people might not see on the outset. And my response to that is that it has everything to do with mental health because the workplace is where we are spending most of our lives. Yes, definitely. And um, the spillover of workplace stress, not only into our own sense of health and well-being, but to spouses, to children, um, I think is, you know, critical to, to understand that many people are better off making less money working in an environment in which they encounter less stress and burnout and not in having a healthier home life than they are kind of working in a much more lucrative occupation that creates a lot of stress and burnout for them that they didn't then spills over into their relationships with their, you know, spouses, partners, and kids. Right. It's not sustainable for the human body to be in constant survival mode. Mm -hmm. And we have to think about, um, modeling, you know, I, I think, um, kids and teenagers are kind of watching their parents and grandparents, aunts and uncles and other adults in their lives in regards to how they manage diversity, how they make decisions about, um, where they work where they send their kids to school, the neighborhoods that they live in. And, you know, all of those are learning opportunities about which values matter and which ones don't. Um, And certainly a community like Athens, you know, there are lots of conversations going on about those issues. Yeah. Well, I think we have reached the end of our time. Thank you so much for engaging in this dialogue with us. Um, I think it can definitely add a lot of value to our society and to the mental health conversation at large. Well, thank you for inviting me into the conversation. And it was just great to connect with both of you. Thank you so much. And everyone, make sure you tune in every other Monday at 8 a.m. for our episodes of Pretty Mental. And be kind to yourselves. Bye. By the way, if you guys made it all the way to the end of this episode, I hope you didn't actually use Q-tips because they're really not good for you. But I still hope your ears are clean. Until next time, my friends.